0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 21st, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we hear what can be learned from listening very closely to the sounds around us. And David Grimm is here with the latest stories from our daily news site. Support for the
1: Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org.
0: In the woods or in the city, we are immersed in ambient noise, sometimes noticeable, sometimes not. Now researchers are capturing these native noises and subjecting them to different types of analysis in order to learn more about ecosystems and the environment. Here's Deputy News Editor David Malakoff speaking with Kelly Servick about the science of soundscapes.
2: So let's start with some really basic definitions. What in the world is soundscape ecology?
0: So soundscape
1: ecology is this emerging field that tries to describe an ecosystem based on the sounds that it makes. So it's using the soundscape, which is the sum of all of the acoustic activity that's produced across a whole landscape. So that means birds and insects, but also the sound of a river, a thunderstorm, an airplane flying overhead, all of those things. And tries to use all that sound to answer questions like um, how diverse is this habitat? How are the different animals interacting with other sounds? And crucially, how is this ecosystem changing and what's driving those changes?
2: I understand researchers have tried to break the soundscape sort of into different categories.
1: Yeah, so there are three basic categories. The first one is biophony. That's all of the wild animal sounds. So an example of biophony would be this chorus of birds. So the second category is geophony, which is other natural sounds like Uh, wind blowing through the trees or a gargling river. Um, So here's an example of geophony. This is a rainstorm. And then the third category is anthropony, And that's human-generated sounds. Everything from people talking while they're hiking through an ecosystem to an airplane flying overhead to something like this snowmobile.
2: So do different ecosystems actually have different soundscapes?
1: What scientists are finding is that that spectrum of sound creates kind of a unique acoustic signature. And every ecosystem has its own signature that sort of differentiates it from other places. Actually, a researcher named Bernie Krause uh, gave me two clips of coral reefs, both recorded off the coast of Fiji. One of the coral reefs is a healthy, lively coral reef. And the other one is dying. And you can tell the difference almost immediately. So here's the healthy coral reef. And here's the dying coral reef.
2: How do they do this, Kelly? How do they collect a soundscape?
1: So researchers can leave microphones out in the field and automate them to collect a clip of sound, for example, five minutes of sound every hour, every day for months at a time, and then they can take that sound and analyze it on computers in the lab.
2: That sounds like a lot of sound.
1: It is. A lot of researchers end up collecting thousands or even hundreds of thousands of hours of sound. And then the challenge becomes, how do you analyze all of this and make it into something meaningful?
2: Right. So how are they trying to boil all this stuff down? Because you can't listen to it in real time.
1: No, it would take more hours than you have in your career to sit through all of these sounds that people have in their collections. So a lot of researchers are trying to create what are called acoustic indices, which are these simple numbers that describe what's going on in the spectrum. So for example, uh, one kind of index would measure the entropy, how complex the sound is. So a really simple, pure tone would have a score of zero. And a really complicated soundscape with lots of things chirping at different frequencies, that would have a score closer to one. So by looking at that number, you could try to estimate how active that ecosystem is and even how many different kinds of species are active.
2: Now, of course, I assume researchers could do this just by going out and counting animals, for instance. What's the big advantage of a soundscape ecology approach uh, compared to other kinds of approaches?
1: There are several advantages. First of all, going out into the field requires intruding on that ecosystem and tromping around, and uh, that could possibly disrupt the ecosystem that you're trying to measure. It's also extremely difficult for the human ear To make these very fine comparisons and figure out how much sound they're hearing, how complex the sound is, requires a very trained set of ears even to pick out the call of an individual species from this big mess of sound. So the computer sort of takes out that step.
2: You suggested that this is an emerging field, that soundscape ecologists are still learning how to do this. What what are some of the problems they're encountering?
1: Well, one of the big problems is that, as you would imagine, there's no single number that's going to describe everything that's going on in an ecosystem. So a lot of researchers are finding that these indices will work in some situations, and then if you try to take it to another environment, it just won't be as effective at measuring the diversity of animals there. So a lot of researchers now are working on ground truthing, which means they're trying to figure out whether other things they can measure, like the structure of the vegetation or the count of the number of species that they've already recorded, matches up with this acoustic data that they have. And that's the kind of information that might be really useful when you're trying to manage an ecosystem and conserve important species.
2: You talked about how difficult it is to manage all this data. I gather that there are some researchers who are converting sound to pictures.
1: Well, some of these pictures are really beautiful. What they do is take these indices and these different measurements and then display them as colors. So a lot of these look kind of like watercolor paintings or sort of abstract art with with all these stripes going across. So, for example, if you had one of these images that lasted for a day, you could see when the chorus of birds started at dawn and when a rainstorm broke out halfway through the day. But then if you looked over the course of a whole season, you could see which of those days had rainstorms, whether the time that the rainstorm started was shifting throughout the season. More complicated patterns like that pop out in these images.
2: You can read Kelly Servic's piece about soundscape ecology in the February 21st issue of Science.
0: Kelly Servick is a writer for Science News. David Malakoff is a deputy news editor. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the compassion of elephants. Elephants have been known to express what seems to be empathy in the past, but there's never really been any strong evidence or any way of proving that. But it looks like that might have actually happened, right, Dave?
3: That's right, Sarah. And when we talk about empathy in elephants, we're talking about behaviors that have been observed. Elephants seem to reassure distressed individuals. They even seem to touch each other when one individual seems stressed out or sad. They touch each other with their trunk, sort of a kind of like we might pat each other on the back or give each other a hug. But this is all, as you alluded to, it's it's sort of never really been confirmed. There haven't been controls done. And that's what this new study is all about.
0: So I wouldn't think anyone would scare or stress out an elephant to find out whether they have empathy. So how do the researchers manage to capture this behavior in a, a logical
3: way? Right. And the researchers didn't want to be unethical. So they sort of just observed some elephants. They looked at 26 captive Asian elephants at a reserve in Thailand. During the day, these elephants spend a lot of time by themselves. And sometimes you know stressful things happen. A dog will walk by. A snake will rustle in the grass or an unfriendly elephant will come along. And what the researchers noticed is that when this would happen, an elephant near such an event, say a snake, would begin flaring its ears and erecting its tail. These are signs of stress or distress. Also, sometimes these elephants trumpeted, or they made a low rumbling sound. Again, all signs of distress. And what the researchers saw is when one elephant did this, an elephant nearby would mimic those behaviors. So if an elephant made this low rumbling sound or spiked up its ears, the elephant nearby would copy that behavior. Sort of like if we're all in a movie theater watching a scary movie, we all sort of scream at the same time. Uh, Even though maybe the other elephant wasn't as scared by whatever was going on, they were still mirroring the behavior.
0: They saw emotion spreading from one elephant to another. But this actually went a step further. What other kinds of reactions did they see in the bystander elephants?
3: Well, there's actually a video on the site that you can watch, but in one example that you can see in the video, there's a female elephant that rushes to the side of another adult female who is upset about hearing the roar of a captive male elephant. Both elephants in the video, they both push their ears forward, they raise their tails, so they're showing that sort of near-empathetic behavior. But the elephant that comes to the other elephant's aid also caresses the scared elephant with her trunk, and actually places her trunk in the other elephant's mouth, an act which might signal, I'm here to help you, everything's going to be okay. Maybe something like we would give each other a hug.
0: Right. Why is this behavior important? What does it mean that one elephant reassures another?
3: Well, this behavior, which is all sort of linked to empathy, sort of our Our ability to to recognize and sympathize with the emotions of others is actually pretty rare in the animal kingdom. It hasn't been seen in a whole lot of animals. And even the animals it has been seen in, it really hasn't been conclusively shown. So that's why this study is so important. Not only are we really seeing these behaviors, but we're really documenting them, showing that they actually seem to not only be occurring, but seem to have the meaning that we think they have.
0: So this obviously wasn't just one observation. What kind of data did they end up collecting?
3: Right, and that's why the results are powerful. Actually, this research took place almost over the course of a year. The researchers really observed a lot of interactions. They also used controls. They used elephants that weren't in stressful situations, but otherwise experienced a lot of the same variables as these elephants, and they didn't see those empathetic responses in those elephants. So this is a pretty good indication that what they're observing is actually true.
0: Next up, we have a story on the history of telescopes. This actually comes from the AAAS annual meeting coverage by the Science News team all last week. And I really like that all these different technologies are being put together to look at how people used to look at the solar system. Let's start with the telescope database, Dave. What goes in there?
3: Well, this is a new database. It's called Diopterus. And it's actually named after a book that was written by uh, Johannes Kepler in the 17th century. And the database contains records of about 1,300 telescopes spanning the years from 1610 to 1775. Now, this is a really formative period in the development of the telescope. This is when telescopes really went from being these sort of slipshod contraptions to becoming more sophisticated. And obviously, the more sophisticated they became, the better they were at observing the heavens.
0: So we've got an online collection of facts and figures on really old telescopes. Where is this information coming from?
3: Well, the researchers collected this information from museums and private collections, really trying to get their hands on as many telescopes as they could. And not only the telescopes themselves, but what they were used for. It turns out a lot of these early telescopes were used for military purposes, spotting distant ships and approaching troop formations.
0: Okay. Well, let's move to phase two. And this is when the ocular properties are analyzed. What kinds of lenses were in use way back in, say, the 1770s?
3: So this was a period where the lenses went from being kind of jagged and having a small field of view to the mass production of what's called the achromatic lens around 1775, which allowed a much sharper and more consistent image between telescopes.
0: Okay, phase three. This is where new technology comes in to recapitulate the old. How will we use new technology to see what, say, Galileo saw.
3: Well, that's the really cool part of the study. The researchers want to use so-called adaptive optics, which is the technology behind today's telescopes, to sort of reverse engineer these telescopes in the database and really get a sense of what these early astronomers saw. What did Galileo see when he peered up at the heavens and saw the phases of Venus? And just really get a, a better sense for how him and a lot of the other early astronomers made some of the amazing discoveries that they did.
0: Finally, we have a story on hiding away your DNA. The more genomes we sequence, the less privacy we have. Even if it's not yours specifically, our relationships to each other, our oddities, and our health can all be dug out of the pile of genomes as it grows ever higher. Anonymizing DNA doesn't usually work because the sequence relates to who we are, and the sequence is important for research. Scramble it for anonymity, and you lose the useful information until now.
3: Right. Well, almost until now, we're getting closer. We want to be able to encrypt our genomes because as you said, sir, there's so much sensitive information is the more we learn about what genes cause cancer and heart disease and a lot of other problems, the less we want other people to know about that. What we do nowadays is we just sort of anonymize the genome. So you can't tell just by looking at a genome who it came from, but one researcher has actually looked at these so-called anonymous genomes and found that in 12% of the cases, he can actually figure out the exact person it came from, so that's not great for privacy. So researchers really want to find a way to encrypt genetic data, just like we encrypt other information on the internet.
0: So how might this encryption work, and wouldn't it mess up the ability to do research with it?
3: Well, that's one problem. I mean, if you encrypt something, sometimes you you really muddle the data so much that you can no longer use it. So the researchers in this study focused on something called homomorphic encryption, which really takes advantage of the way that DNA is sequenced and analyzed in the first place. The cool thing about homomorphic encryption is it still allows computers to access and analyze the data without really knowing whose data they're accessing and analyzing. One of the researchers compares it to locking a gold brick in a safe with a pair of gloves attached to openings in the side. You can manipulate the gold. You can even make jewelry out of it theoretically, but you never have full access to the brick itself. And this is sort of the same idea.
0: Will encrypting information like this slow down research or have an impact on who can actually use this data for research?
3: Well, homomorphic encryption actually takes a relatively long time, at least in an encryption terms. So scientists really need to find a way to speed up the process. But experts think we could be there in 10 years where we could really use this type of encryption, and it could be actually much more practical than it is right now.
0: Okay. Is anyone saying this solution is future-proof, <laughs> that sometime down the line there isn't going to be a computer that can crack these codes?
3: Well, one big problem is, Sarah, say you encrypt all your genomic information so I can't access it on a computer, but I have my own sequencer at home. All I gotta do is shake your hand, take some of that DNA back home, and I know exactly what diseases you might be likely to develop. So there are some weak links here which are gonna have to be addressed if this technology really does become the way to protect our DNA.
0: Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave?
3: Well, Sarah, I encourage listeners to check out some of our other coverage from the AAAS annual meeting in Chicago, including a story about what physicists would do if they had their hands on the world's most powerful laser a video chat with a man who spent 29 years in solitary confinement, and a new short video series we ran this year called Science Wow, where we asked people at the meeting to tell us the coolest science facts they know. And we got some really cool and very surprising answers to that. Elsewhere on the site, we've got a story about how humans and dog brains are a lot more similar than we thought. And for Science Insider, we've got a story about a criminal probe into a pharmaceutical company in Japan. Also a story about why some high-profile stem cell papers are under fire. And finally, for Science Live, our weekly chat on the hottest topics in science. We don't have a Science Live this week, but we're returning next week with a live chat with top scientists on a very cool research topic. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news, our upcoming live chats, and the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher, and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to Science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org/join. That's AAAS.org/join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers.